three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. This is Nuclear Knowledge. Production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another exciting episode of Nuclear Knowledge, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. The views of the host are his own. And I am your host, Jim Petrosky. And last week, I discussed science and the scientific method. My goal was for you to learn how most scientists approach problems and cover the rigorous process for making discoveries or gathering data for making decisions. The scientific method is an extremely useful tool to ensure quality information is provided to decision and policy makers. And the fact that we go through such a rigorous and time-tested process indicates to our adversaries and our allies that we are serious about our capabilities and we are confident we will get it right. And many of our national security systems, including sensors, communication systems, and yes, nuclear weapons, the scientific method was used in their development and decisions made to policies and applications. And to this point, in the previous podcast, episode 40, and today's podcast, episode 41, I have discussed this method as a part of scientific discovery. And these principles apply to scientific studies, but should be considered as well for other analytical studies. Although the methods used to collect data and experiments, air quotes used here, are quite different. For example, one might conduct an analysis of the causes of the Revolutionary War and how we might prevent similar wars. A good study, especially for a peace organization like NIDS. After a careful historical review of documents and analysis of individual writings by English statesmen and colonial members of the time, the hypothesis is that the colonialists wanted more coffee and King George was pushing tea. That hypothesis is amplified by the Boston Tea Party event, as nobody would have thrown coffee into the harbor. In fact, had it been me, I would have thrown the British sailors into the harbor and opened a Starbucks. Anyway. As a scientist, I would want to go back in time, set the conditions, and see if war breaks out if King George gets on the dark roast kick instead of the English breakfast kick, with milk and steep just to the right temperature bandwagon. But unfortunately, my time machine is down for annual maintenance. Thus, analysts must find other methods to test their hypotheses by deduction and examples and trusting and understanding human nature. Hmm, that has never gone wrong before, has it? However, in the end, having a tried and tested method, such as the scientific method, provides the framework to get it right. However, there are a few things added in that are worth considering if you are an experimentalist or an analyst. Now, what I'm about to say applies directly to experimentalists and analysts. So listen closely. The purpose of collecting data, studying it, and providing a conclusion or an analysis is to provide information to a decision maker. This is often misunderstood and something I unfortunately learned late in my science career. Consider me giving you a head start. Again, for emphasis, the purpose of collecting data and studying it and providing a conclusion or an analysis is to provide information for a decision maker. The experimentalist and analyst must ensure that the analysis provides useful information 
complete and accurate information, and it's presented so that the decision maker can use it. Thus, just as I said in a previous episode, you must conduct an unbiased experiment, scrutinize the data, analyze it using that gray matter you work so hard to develop, and present it to a decision maker or decision making body. And for you decision makers, you should expect nothing less. Having a good method only provides a good framework. One must still use appropriate methods for data collection and follow logic to derive information useful to a decision. Recently, I've observed a few fallacies that have crept into experimental results and analysis that I wish to share on this podcast. Much of this is derived via a study of logic and philosophy that I've conducted after reading the book, Plato and a Platypus Walk into a Bar, Understanding Philosophy Through Jokes. It's a must-read if you're serious about getting it right, or if you need a few jokes to get the party started. Seriously, though, this is a great reading. It will open your eyes and give you a great laugh, and afterwards, you can impress your friends by telling them that you read philosophy. Anyway, here are three observations that indicate bad logic that has crept into our experimental and analytical culture. You probably see it every day in the news, and these errors can result in bad conclusions that can impact important decisions. And after all, national security is important, so we must get it right. One logical concept that is often misapplied is analysis by falsifiability, meaning that if you study something and wish to prove it, then your analysis must also be able to be proven wrong. In podcast 40, I highlighted this as part of the hypothesis, extending this idea to the concept that value is there whether you prove it right or prove it wrong. An example I take from Plato and Platypus book is a good one to remember. Here goes. Person A stated, if you butter bread and drop it over carpet, it will always land butter side down. You ask for proof. So you conduct an experiment and the bread lands butter side up. Person A then insists that it's your fault because you buttered the wrong side of the bread. Ha, huh, it's not falsifiable. Now, how can you argue with that? Often you'll find this in discussions when you produce a fact that is contrary to another person. And so they begin changing the scope or the rules, or they just call you a foul name. Another common logic concept misapplied is that of analysis by consensus. In other words, if enough people back it up, it must be true. And this is often applied with no facts or concept of the hypothesis being tested. My best example comes from the great scientist himself, Albert Einstein, whose concept of special relativity was rejected by many, many well-known scientists. His answer to a 1931 article stating that his special relativity was wrong, titled 100 Authors Against Einstein, was, quote, if I was wrong, only one would do. In the end, a single fact of disproof would have been enough. No proof was given by the 100 authors in the pamphlet. Lastly, I often see the concept analysis by expertise used. Just as with the last example, experts can get it wrong. Proof lies in the careful analysis and the presentation of the data. This is often the case when a new researcher is presenting data that may be controversial and an expert disagrees. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a need for experts, and I respect the time, effort, and talents of experts. But until the expert conducts the full scrutiny of the data, just like the experimentalist did, 
their opinion can be wrong and also must be rigorously tested and supported. Now, since I'm a scientist, I'll provide an example related to black holes because, after all, they're a very sciencey kind of thing. You see, the other day, I walked out and noticed Pip, our exceptionally reliant rodent reduction system, and certainly an expert among our cats, staring into a black hole in the ground. He was convinced some form of rodentia was about to pop out of that hole. The other cats from our barn, who are less reliable, saw him and formed a circle around the hole. Even though they are more prone to hanging out on a pillow in our barn, they stayed there all day in the sun, waiting and watching based upon the available information from the expert PIP. If only they had asked or conducted an experiment to find out about the hole and done a rigorous study, they would have found out that I placed that hole there the day before when I put a post there for some reason I can't even remember. But in the end, regardless of expert opinion, questions must be asked and reliable information must be had. Okay, maybe not the best example, but I know our audience was expecting something about my cats in this podcast. So in the end, experiments and analysis are important, and we must get it right. The scientific method provides a framework, but there are logical fallacies that can impede the quality of the results, and you can get familiar with them through the jokes presented in the book, Plato and a Platypus. At least, that's how I learned it. Lastly, NIDS is on our last week of our donor drive before our first birthday. You can get a chance to make a donation, make a difference, and get some really great merch. Check us out at thinkdeterrence.com. Thank you for listening to today's Nuclear Knowledge Show. I hope you learned something new and valuable about deterrence. Nuclear Knowledge is a production of NIDS, a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrent. This podcast is produced weekly, and each episode is released on Monday. If you enjoy this show, check out our other podcast, The Nuclear View. You can catch it and all our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com. I thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear knowledge. A production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies.